Hey, what's up, everybody? Thank you for listening to the Wesley Memorial Church podcast. This is Pastor Clark here. Just want to say thank you for tuning in and listening. We're beginning an exciting new Advent sermon series called Advent Between Two Worlds. And you're going to hear a sermon that we did just this past Sunday on that and how we can look at Christ's birth and Christ's future coming. And in between those two stories, how we find ourselves in this glorious story of God during this Advent season. We also invite any of you to join us for worship, either online or in person at 8.30 and 11 traditional in our sanctuary or 9.45 in contemporary in our dining hall. You can go to our website, wesleymemorial.org to learn more. Thanks again for listening. God bless each of you. And we hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. As we saw that clip and we see about Christmas past, I love looking at old home movies. It always kind of, I'm kind of a sucker for that. It always kind of makes me tear up. Um, so I thought I would bless you by letting you see pictures of me when I was, I think, two or three years old. Yeah, there's me. Uh, if you want to see me in knee-high socks, now's your chance. Um, 1980, I don't know, 81 maybe. Uh, and wearing a Peter Pan collar. So, uh, you know, looking at the old memories we have from our Christmases past, the wistfulness of nostalgia, of looking in the past, it kind of helps ground us in the present in some ways and gives us hope for the future because it makes us want to have those same memories for our children or to pass those things on to those around us. And it got me thinking um, in a metaphysical way, you know, when this life is over, it made me think, what happens to our memories? What happens to... Uh, the things that we lived our lives when we're in heaven, you know, there's nothing really scriptural that tells us that. And yet there really is. If you read near the end of the book of Revelation, when uh, God, uh, to paraphrase, God says, I will wipe away every tear and will heal every disease. And that implies that that the memories of even the pain that we bring into heaven, God, we remember it. And yet God redeems it and he heals it. So in many ways, our past, who we are, for better or worse, of course, it makes us who we are. It's part of our story, our individual stories. Whether you're even watching and maybe you're not a religious person, that our past, who we are, makes us who we are in some ways. And where we have been is important. And where we're going one day is important. And we're forever creating the present. I mean, we're forever uh, creating the past as we live in the present. And the future is always happening. And as we live in the present time, here and now, we're in between those two worlds, aren't we? We're in between the world in which we lived and the memories we made. And we're also looking to the future. We're living between two worlds. I mean, think of a a piece of paper. And think of that piece of paper infinitely extended, where the paper would never end. And on that piece of infinite paper, draw a line. A fairly long line, maybe in that line would represent time. And within that line you have drawn for time, put a little dot, and that dot would be your life and my life. As time in the line begins and ends on that expanse, so time begins and ends in God, in God. It begins in God and ends in God. He's outside of time, and our lives, our stories, our present, and our past, and our futures begin and end in him. It made me think about, what's my earliest memory? 
When my son was younger, he swore to us he could remember the day he was born. And I said, that's probably not true, but I want to hear what you thought happened, because I was there. So let me know. Now, I think we usually can remember about age three, and that's about the earliest, unless you want to raise your hand and prove me wrong, um, we will be astounded. But usually we can't remember much further than that. Because our minds, we, we can try to look backwards as far as we can until our, the dim past sort of vanishes away. Or we int- attempt to look into the future until our imaginations collapse. But God is at both points. And he's unaffected by either. God lives in the everlasting now. I mean, think about that. I mean, this is pretty, it kind of blows my mind to think about. But God is always in the everlasting now. He has no past. He has no future. We may live in between the, the two worlds of the past and the future, but God does not. For God, everything that will happen has already happened. God is outside of time and in an eternal state of self-sufficiency, omniscient power and wisdom. And even those words fall short of the eminence of who God is. That's why God can say things like, I am that I am. Before Abraham was, I am. I'm the first and the last. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. Do I not fill heaven and earth? God says in Jeremiah 23. So as we live between these two worlds of the past and the future, Advent is a time as well where we look back at Christ's first coming, but we're also looking ahead to his second coming or his second advent, if you will. But even in a, through all of that, we'll be looking to God who sees it all and it's already played out for him. He already sees the whole route of the parade and how it ends and begins. Now in the advent season, of course, people automatically want to look back at the nativity, little eight pound, six ounce baby Jesus, and we want to go there immediately. But we don't get there yet in the Christian calendar. Not quite yet, because Advent is not just an emotional exercise where we wistfully look back at the past and give ourselves a warm fuzzy, as important as that might be. You know, it's like cherished home movies, old pictures. They're great. It's great. But you can't, you can't go there and stay there. There's more to it than that. We look to the future of Jesus' promised return. And as we do that, we find ourselves in between two advents or two arrivals, if you will. Here's what I mean. In the Christian calendar, today is the first Sunday of Advent. It's the beginning of a new Christian calendar year. And the term Advent, Latin, and it means uh, adventus, means arrival. And during Advent or arrival, we spend time looking at at least three different advents. Obviously, the first, as I said, we gets the most attention is little baby Jesus in Bethlehem and all the wonderful things that go with that, the incarnation, God in flesh with us, and the miraculous uh, undertaking of what that means for humanity. Another arrival that we'll look at is the arrival that can happen in our, your heart and your life, the arrival of the Holy Spirit that we can receive by faith into our lives. That is an advent, perhaps maybe the most important Advent. And if you're watching today and you've never done that, you don't know Christ as Savior and Lord, you can know the arrival of the peace of God in your heart here and now, today, this very moment, you can have peace with God with that 
advent, if you will, of Christ living and reigning as Savior and Lord in your life. And the third advent that we would look at today is what we would call the second coming, or a second arrival, or a second advent. The day when Jesus will return, and all will be revealed. And when the clouds will roll back like a scroll, and the trumps will resound, and the Lord will descend. And this brings us back to where we are. We're in between one advent and another, between two worlds. We are, but we are not yet. And all of creation is in these birth pangs, as Paul wrote in Romans. Even then, he could feel it. And we're even closer now than ever before. If you're in Christ, we, you are. You have been delivered from sin. You will live eternally with God. You've been delivered from sin and death. And yet, the deliverance of all creation, when God will come and redeem the heavens and the earth, has yet to come. And the ultimate judgment as well. So today, we begin our journey and at the end. The end is the beginning on the Christian calendar. Mark chapter 13, if you brought your Bible, which I know some of you did, you can turn to Mark 13, verse 24. These uh, verses will also be on the screen over here. But in those days, after that suffering, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now in Mark 13, if you go back before verse 24, Jesus speaks about a a cataclysm, if you will, an event that you could escape. If you read verses 14 to 23 of Mark chapter 13, Many people believe he's referring to when Jerusalem got sacked in A.D. 70 and the Romans took it over and they put a, slaughtered a pig and put it on the altar in the temple. I mean, all these things happened. It was ugly stuff. And so Jesus could very well be referring to that, but he speaks in a very general sense here as well. But whatever it was, it's intense suffering, and, but you could have escaped it. Here in verse 24, though, Jesus' tense shifts His tone changes, and he refers to something that no one will be able to escape. That his first advent, his first arrival, many people had no idea it even happened in the world when Jesus was born. Except King Herod, he he knew. But very few people even knew. But when Jesus says, when I come back, everyone will know. It will be undeniable. And you cannot get away from it. So this, of course, begs the question, when will these things occur? And that's what everybody always wonders. Well, Jesus seems to know what we're thinking, because then in the very next verse, he answers our question in the most Jesus-y way possible with a parable. Verse 28, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. I'll stop there because for so many years I've read this and I thought, what does that mean? It's so general. Is he just supposed, we're just supposed to sort of get a rough idea of when that will be? And in many ways he's saying, well, let's remember that springtime is a time of growth. 
It's a time of new life. It's a time when things burst up out of the ground and, and new exciting growth is happening. And he, this could be, not entirely, but it could be Jesus saying, before I come back, there will be a great revival. There will be a great awakening that will sweep the, the planet, the likes of which we've never seen. And many, many people will come to faith in Jesus Christ before his return. I personally believe that. Maybe it's not in my lifetime, but he could be saying that before I return, although there will be hardship, there will probably be an increase of evil. There's no doubt about that, that it will get worse before it gets better. But it will be like the wheat and the tares growing simultaneously before his return. So then in verse 20, uh, I'm sorry, verse 30, truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus, Jesus gives that claim as well that his words will live on forever. Then verse 32, but about the day or the hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the son, but only the father. Beware, keep alert, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his slaves or servants in charge. Where's they put servants there? Each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to be on the watch. Therefore, keep awake. I'll stop there because we just went through the Matthew 24 and 25 and so much of Jesus' teaching about Matthew. These parables come up over and over again of Jesus saying, I'm getting ready to go and while I'm gone, y'all need to be in charge of what I've given you. And you see it again here in Mark. He's saying, me leaving and coming back, it's like I'm entrusting to you to do what I've asked you to do. The doorkeepers could very well be priests or pastors or leaders of some sort. Therefore, keep awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or at cock crow. I've been to the the Dominican Republic. That's really early. Cock crow. Or at dawn, or else he may find you asleep when he comes suddenly. And what I say to you, I say to all, keep awake. And astounding things that he has to say there. And it makes me think about, again, of Christmas memories gone past. I saw, you saw those pictures of me as a little boy at Christmas time. You know, when I was a, a little kid at Christmas Eve, like many of you, um, it was nearly impossible to get me to go to sleep. Um, the night before Christmas. I mean, I asked Santa for things, and he's going to bring them to my house. I cannot go to sleep. I, I asked for these. I'm waiting. I got a Sears catalog in the mail. These cool kids are playing with G.I. Joes. I'm so pumped. There's no way I'm going to sleep. I mean, one year, not to brag, but I got a letter back from Santa. You want me to go to sleep? Not going to happen. So we would go to bed, but we wouldn't go to sleep. Every creak you heard made you think Santa Claus was outside the door. Every noise above your head convinced reindeer on the roof. Melatonin gummies were not a thing back then. If they were, they might have been administered generously. But anticipating the future wasn't too hard on those nights. It was actually really easy. Keeping awake was easy. When you knew the arrival date, when you knew what was coming, keeping awake was not a problem. If my parents had come in to us and said, hey, stay awake, Santa Claus is coming anytime, well, we'd stay awake all night. I would not have gone to sleep. 
But they didn't, of course. They said, hey, 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 Santa knows when you're asleep. He knows when you're awake. So you better get to sleep. But Jesus here, he commands us to keep awake. Now that's harder to do when you don't know the arrival date. When the, when the arrival date is unknown. And he warns against those who assume to know the day or the hour. So it is an attitude of faith to await this sort of spring growth that may precipitate or precede Jesus' coming. But if there's one thing all end-time prophets have in common is that they've all gotten it wrong, right? Every single one has been wrong. I remember in 2012 when all that crazy stuff was going on and the Mayan calendar and all this stuff and this guy, I forgot his name, he had billboards all in the country and they sold their houses and they, they you know, it was sure Jesus was coming back on December 21st, 2012. There's even a movie with John Cusack that wasn't very good. In 20, about 2012. But the arrival date, you don't know. Even Jesus says he doesn't know. Only the Father knows. But when you don't know when the thing is supposed to happen, you begin to wonder if it's ever going to happen at all. Jesus warns us there, just as he did in Matthew 24 and 25. He's saying, me leaving is like an owner. I'm entrusting to you with what I'm giving you. You see this, he's kind of repeating himself a lot. You're my servants while I'm away, so be faithful while I'm away. Keep your lamps full of oil. You know, be ready. But even then, as we seek to be steadfast and prayerful and keep an eye on the horizon, doubt is always sort of there. We don't make a date with it, but it just sort of wants to pop up and go, really, is that really what he said? It's like, it's like Satan in the Garden of Eden. Really? Is that really what God said? I don't know. But it is what Jesus said. It can make us feel hopeless, especially in the year in which we found ourselves. We can feel hopeless, like God is never going to come through on his end of the bargain. You know, it reminds me of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's a German pastor, and in the late 1930s, Bonhoeffer would flee his native Germany for obvious reasons as the Nazi party was taking over, and he ran to escape. And as he's fleeing Germany, he felt called by God to return after a few years. And he did. He returned to Germany and began to preach against the Nazis. They would eventually cost Dietrich Bonhoeffer his life. But while he's imprisoned in Tegel prison, he would write some of the greatest uh, works of theology ever written by a human being. And in one of those letters in the prison, he would write, a prison cell is like this that he was in is a good analogy for Advent. One waits, hopes, does this or that, but the door is locked and can only be opened from the outside. And it's so true, as we find ourselves between two different worlds, we are, we are waiting for that door to be opened. We're waiting for the clouds to be rolled back and Jesus to descend on the clouds with all the angels in heaven. But this comparison with a prison cell with Advent, it may seem strange, but it, it's really not, because it's, it's an it's a analogy, really, of grace, that God is the one that does it all. But when we're in a prison cell, it can make you feel like you're powerless. But in reality, he's saying this pr- pr- type of waiting does prepare us for Christ's coming, that we, are, we may feel powerless, but we are not hopeless, amen? We are not hopeless, but we may be powerless. 
we, we, we have, but we have the Holy Spirit to affirm us and to help us as we wait. Through Advent, we learn how to live in these two concurrent realities. We're waiting. We may feel we're waiting for that door to be opened, for him to come through and deliver us in all of creation. And yet you have been delivered from sin and death. Christ has done it on your behalf. We don't need to come and keep begging God to forgive us over and over again. Sometimes that's necessary, but sometimes we need to go, hey, Jesus paid the price already. I don't need to be constantly flagellating myself. Move on. You've been forgiven. Let it go. It's been done. If we find ourselves between two worlds, though, and we do, it's the Christian message that, that fully explains this reality in which we find ourselves. That's why Christianity is the most popular religion in the world. It's because it meets the fundamental desires of the human condition. Whether who we are, no matter what we believe, the gospel satisfies the needs of the human heart. Whether we're religious or not, whether you're a believer or not, taste and see, try it and see, and get back to me, and you will discover that what Jesus promises and what he says is true. All, but all people on earth, we have this unfulfilled sense of rightness. There's a restlessness to the human heart. And many people can't place it. Why is it there? Why do I feel that way? Where's this lack of peace? Where does this sense of unfulfillment come from? Why is it there? And by what standard can I make that determination? What I would say is this. Just as physical hunger shows our need for food, so it is that humanity's hunger for redemption, it's in our spiritual DNA. We can't shake it. It's built in. We know that things are not as they should be. We know that I'm in a prison cell and the door has to be open from the outside. I'm completely throwing myself on the mercy of God. Things are not as they should be be and yet we are powerless to change it ourselves many may ask and have asked what does it matter that a little jewish boy was born in a backwater town in judea 2000 years ago what difference does that make in my life now what difference does it make that jesus says he's going to return on clouds with the angels and judge the righteous and the unrighteous? The answer is that his life, his words, his sacrifice is the perfect answer for the predicament that humanity finds itself. It is the only answer. Now more than ever in human history, the behavior of human beings shows that one, we're sinners, two, we're powerless to fix our problem, three, we need rescue. That is why Jesus matters. And billions of lives could attest to the reality of those promises of Christ. That is why it matters. And that's why we're waiting with hope. That's why it matters that yes, that prison cell maybe can only be opened from the outside. But it, and, it, and it will be. It will be opened one day. But the really good news is that this the door inside of our hearts can be opened at any moment to the invitation of Christ. Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, Look, I stand at the door and I knock. 
If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. We may feel powerless as we wait, but we do not wait without hope. Why? Because Jesus promises he will return again and again. The owner says, I will return. And this is why it's so important to begin our Advent journey with this story of Christ's return. Because it not only gives us hope for our planet, but it also gives hope to the original, the first Advent of the Nativity story. That God has already seen the whole continuity of it all and sees how it will begin and end. And as we sit, we're going to sing one more song, and it's called Waiting Here for You. And it's one of the most beautiful, it's a contemporary worship song, but it fits perfectly with Advent in that it is a time of waiting. Now, I know as Methodists, we may not feel comfortable raising our hands in worship. There's different, I'm somewhat introverted, so sometime I'll, I'll, sometimes I'll maybe get this far, maybe get this far. But what I love about that posture of worship, it doesn't matter if you do it or not, but what I love about that posture of worship, it's, it's a posture of expectancy. It's a posture of receiving. It's a posture of, of asking for rescue. And even as Wesleyans, our history has been, which we need to recapture, which is singing with, with the depth of our soul. We are, a, we, are a, we are a singing faith. And these songs are just prayers. of saying, Lord, I'm waiting here for you. We are waiting with expectancy. We are, we are groaning for that day that will come. And until that day comes, we will continue to wait on you because you're good and your promises are unfailing and you, ne- you, you have never failed us and you never will. So let's stop worrying about what other people think and let's stop being afraid of being judged and be a people that open our hearts and our lives before the Lord and know that when we wait on him, we will not be dismayed, but that he will lift us up and give us honor. And it is merely a foretaste of the glory and the joy and the bliss that is yet to come and the life after this one. Amen? Amen. So we invite you to stand and sing this together.